Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm Chesney. And today we have the episode, uh, Prince Who Runs Through the Night. I'm just going to put a big old spoiler warning up ahead of time. Uh, this entire episode deals with sexual assault, and so we will be discussing that throughout. Um, and if somehow you didn't figure out that was the subtext of this episode, well, now you know. <laughs> it was pretty overt subtext. Um, I mean, I will say, like, the first 80% of the episode, it's not entirely clear what is happening, at least not to, like, a first-time viewer. Oh, yeah. Like, you knew going in because I told you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I meant, like, the peak of the scene is, like, yeah, it's pretty overt. But no, yeah. you're totally right that the... <laughs> The first 80%, you're like, wait, what? What? Where are we? What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> and one thing about this episode is that it is a recap episode. And mm -hmm. like all the recap episodes so far, we get a new plot throughout the recap. You know, like the, the first time we did the recap episode, we were first introduced to Akio. And we found out that like, he has been observing the duels the whole time. Later, we would find out he was manipulating them to make them happen. But like, he had like a whole plan laid out with how these duels were going to go. Second right. recap episode, we had uh, Tsuobuki and Nanami with like the journal and finding out like all the backstory behind a bunch of the Nanami episodes. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, this one, this one, we're recapping the so-called Akio Otori arc and pretty much nothing to do with the duels that we see like replayed throughout the episode. Pretty much none of that matters. No, it's not only just filler. It's like distracting filler. <laughs> yeah, more so than an ordinary recap episode. Like this is an episode that feels like it didn't want to be a recap. Like they had enough here that they could have just actually filled it out with real content and not filler from past episodes. Uh, like they were doing this because they had a format yeah. where like at the end of every arc, they go back and recap it. But they knew they wanted to do something completely different with this episode. And that is what we got. The other interesting thing about this episode is how it plays with perspective. Mm -hmm. um, we have in a lot of scenes what looks like, at first glance, the typical omniscient viewpoint where we, the audience, have... A, a unique omniscient view of the characters. We are not put in any particular character's point of view. That changes with this episode. There are a number of scenes that, while it is never named and never called out as such, it becomes clear that they are very obviously being seen from Akio's point of view. In particular, we are seeing Utena from Akio's point of view. 
we are seeing how he objectifies her. Yeah. During some of these like quiet, vulnerable moments where she's letting her guard down almost in the same way that she does around Anthe. Yeah. And he's well, just of course. silently watching and observing her. And it's so creepy. Like they did such a good job, like with giving the ick <laughs> with this episode. <laughs> they really did. Because it's so fucking creepy to just like like you just said, normally we're watching from like just a general unnamed, like third party omniscient viewer type perspective. But the way that this is shot is so obviously we are looking at her through somebody else's eyes. Like the majority of the frames are like the same scenery because it's just somebody looking in the same direction. And it is so off-putting. This episode was shot so similarly to a horror movie or any kind of like horror genre with how off-putting it was. Yeah, there's a lot of very long single frame shots. Yeah. Where we hang on a single image while one character, Utna specifically, is just talking at length. And the content of her speech is always just like this raw stream of consciousness. Yeah. Which which means like, which from a writing and cinematography perspective that should tell you that the content of the scene is not carried by her dialogue the content of the scene is who is watching her in this moment yeah and yeah you're right that is some horror movie shit like that is how you frame scenes where like you're seeing the victim from the killer's perspective yeah and the the victim doesn't know that the killer is there oh God, I hate it. Ugh. They did such a good job. <laughs> Hats off to the creative team, but also like, <laughs> And I would say that like this episode and how it does this framing, I think on some level brings into question the neutrality of our frame throughout the show. Like I've saved this conversation for now <laughs> for the for a very spe- specific reason that like this is the first time it becomes explicit. Yeah. But I think that like if you think back to the 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 Black Rose arc, right? Like we sometimes see it like we sometimes see the world as it is and sometimes we see the world as Mikage thinks it is or believes it is. Yeah, that's true. Who possibly knows the difference between those things and can show us that? I mean, Anthe. And Akio. Yeah. The two, the two people who have ostensibly been at Otori the longest and like know their way around whatever this bizarre carnival is. Yeah. The, the two that bend reality in this school to their will. Uh huh. Uh huh. And then we have like going back to the first recap episode with Akio, where we see the duels in the recap. And at that moment, it's like, wait, 
is the viewpoint that we've always had Akios. Mm. Like, are we seeing these duels in this magical place from the perspective of the person watching them? Yeah, I could see that. And I, yeah. And then, like, it brings into question, like, what are the things throughout the show that we're not being shown? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about it, it does make sense. Like, his uh, his obsession with Utena, always, like, the camera always following her around. Like, it totally makes sense from, like, a... <laughs> it totally makes sense from a main character standpoint, but, like, it makes even more sense that he is the one following her around. Like, he is the one cataloging this quote-unquote main character plot development character arc. Like, I can totally see it, basically, is what I'm saying. <laughs> like, this entire episode, and in reference, like, in reflecting on this, the entire series kind of takes on, like, this cinema verite kind of feel or vibe to it of, like, simply documenting from a biased observer's point of view where we have to consider wherever you point the camera, there's the other 359 degrees of the circle that you're not pointing the camera at. Mm -hmm. And what's not being seen when you do that, when you choose what to put in the frame. I mean, when you think about it this way, several other things also make sense. Like, for example, the fact that Anthe whenever she wants to speak up and say something to Utena, she never does. She always says, never mind, cuts herself off. Sure, that could be like a um, insecurity or like trauma thing or, you know, but it makes even more sense if she knows Akio is always watching. Yeah. There's never a safe moment as long as they're at Otori Academy. She does not have the luxury of being vulnerable and or being her truest self. Yeah, yeah. Like, the way that his apartment and the planetarium are at the top of that tower turns uh -huh. all of Otori Academy into a panopticon. Yep. Oh, man, I wonder if you got, like, an, a totally aerial view of the school, if it would look like an eyeball. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, <laughs> we, we do get one uh, in the very first episode. We get, like, that... Uh, overhead like, shot of the campus like top down uh, it's not like perfectly top okay. down it's like at like a 60 degree angle you know coming in okay um, okay okay. and you can see like the tower at the the front of the school and then those like l-shaped buildings where like all the arches are where like all the hallways that overlook the the rose garden Mm -hmm. And then beyond that is the track and the um, the dueling forest. You yeah. very conspicuously cannot see the dueling arena because the stairs rise up out of the forest into the sky. And like you can't see it from the ground and like it doesn't exist. It's not in a real space at that point. Yeah. Uh, but like you can see like off to the sides, the the dormitories and then. In front of it all, you can see like that cliff and stairway 
that um, goes away through that uh, teacher town. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um the 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 creepy pervy music teacher. Yeah. Uh, so like yeah no we do get that shot like we do get an image. Um, I guess you can kind of see an eyeball in like the the spire if like it looks more like a cat's eye. Okay. Because of like the spire. Yeah. Um, but I guess you could kind of see it that way. Hmm. Otherwise, like the track and field, I think, with the dueling arena in the center of it would probably look a little closer to that. The dueling forest is just the the eyebrow or the eyelashes of the eye. <laughs> well, I was gonna say the pupil. <laughs> oh yeah, well that too. Um there's something else I was gonna say. Don't you love how we're just like stalling to avoid talking about the content of this episode? <laughs> no, but this is serious stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know if Otori Academy looks like an eyeball, goddammit. <laughs> uh, no, there really was something else I was going to say, and I can't remember. It was in the context of Akio always watching. It explains why, um, it explains like why. Utena is always in perspective. Why Anthe never feels like she can say anything true or real or break the um, illusion that they all have. There was something else. Oh, it also. So, okay. You and I have talked about this before, but in I love Utena. I love her to death, but it does make, make way more sense if Jury was the protagonist of this show. <laughs> how so <laughs> because she's so interesting <laughs> like what? so what about this episode brought up that thought well no it was more thinking about the um if akio is the one holding the camera like he's focused on utana so you miss other like true protagonists and main characters and their like development and arc. And in fact, like they intentionally keep them stifled <laughs> um, by like manipulating situations to like draw them back in to their bullshit. Uh, but you miss those like character development moments and things like that by just focusing on Utena. And yeah, you could be like, Oh, but jury has an episode. Mickey has an episode, blah, blah, blah. All the student council members have an episode. Yeah, but it still revolves around Utena. Sure. It's all about her and her defeating them. Like, they are the quote-unquote enemy in that moment that she has to overcome and defeat. It's not about, like, exploring their character. Even though we get those glimpses into it, again, the situation is always manipulated so that they're pulled back and they regress. They never truly grow. I think an interesting counterpoint to all of that is nanami because nanami is the one character who gets episodes all to herself where the action is not revolving around utina's relationship to the scene it's about nanami's relationship to the scene and like the events playing out uh which i guess like is a whole new layer we have to consider with like Akio's viewpoint, like why Nanami? <laughs> right. That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but we do know that 
the Nanami episodes were written by a different writer with like the mandate of like break up the action, break up the the pace a little bit. And so like tonally, they're completely different from the rest of the series. But then over the course of the 39 episodes of this show, her character is woven back into the main plot, taking the events of her episodes as read. You know, like the weird magic that plays out in them and her own independent character development are retained in the mainline episodes that have her in them, which I think is a really interesting phenomenon, which isn't always how it happens when you have uh, like a different writer writing a particular set of episodes. Yeah. Um, like I think about like some U S series, like, um, you know, Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica or um, back in the era of like serialized television, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you would have each episode written by a different writer. And so some writers would have a tone that is just wildly inconsistent with the rest of the show. And that is kind of what happens with the Nanami episodes. But then the show meets them halfway. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's not lost on me that this episode comes directly on the heels of two of the most significant episodes in Nanami's character arc. Yeah. Like with her discovering what's going on with Akio and Anthe, and then her finding out that uh, she and Toga were adopted. Although she doesn't find out that they are still blood related. Yeah. Um, this is her having a complete break with everything that kept her trapped the way the other student council members are. Yeah, absolutely. And Shit now change for Nanami. <laughs> yeah. And now we have the same thing happen with Utana. It goes in oh, a different God. direction. But now we have the not the conclusion, but like a conclusion to her whole saga involving the prince in that she has found someone who can be her prince for better or for worse. Worse is doing a lot of work in that sentence. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> with that unless you have more i think we should probably start talking about the no, episode proper let's, no let's do it and i i will say something that i told to autumn before we started recording this which was that we watched this episode and because of the like some things out of our control <laughs> Uh, we weren't able to immediately record it like we normally do. So as a result, this shit haunted me for like two days straight. And when we sat down and started talking about it a little bit more and then now have started recording, I'm literally getting hit by like wave after wave of imagery, like a fucking semi just running me over in the road. Like <laughs> this shit stuck with me. Oh my God, you guys. Yeah, yeah, this is a haunting episode. This is quite possibly 
the most realistic portrayal of dissociation during sexual assault I have ever seen on film. Yeah. And grooming? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a process that has been playing out for the 32 episodes prior as well. (laughs) Yeah. But here we see it come to its conclusion. And like I said, I think this is one of the most accurate depictions of dissociation I've ever seen. Um, And we'll talk about that when we get to that scene. Um, The episode itself opens with the carnival at night. And you can see the Ferris wheel going. And while this long, slow, ponderous shot is just inching along as it tracks across the frame, we get the fairy tale opening from the Shadow Girls. And... It's such a powerful juxtaposition to have the familiar text being read to us over a completely different context. Because like I just said in our extended intro, (laughs) we have now Utena finding her so-called prince, the person who gave her the ring years and years ago brought her to a Tory Academy and now it comes all the way around full circle to her acknowledging him as that whether or not that is accurate I think is probably an open question but we have seen in like the car scenes that Akio in his like in his equivalent of a dueling outfit (laughs) uh, he certainly has a prince outfit that he jumps on the hood of the car with, you know? And so now we have Utena's introduction being played over the backdrop of what has apparently been a really fun day together. And I don't want to downplay that aspect of it because that is a key part of what plays out after. Uh, It just breaks my heart so much (laughs) that he like, took her to a carnival or a fair or just an amusement park or, you know, he, he took her to that and they had fun and she like trusted him. Ah, (laughs) it just, Oh God, you guys, this shit just rips me to pieces. Don't mind me. I'm just over here having like fucking (laughs) maladaptive daydreams of murdering this fucking character (laughs) over taking (laughs) advantage over another one anyway yeah even the beginning fucks you up because of how like again creepily shot it is and how it immediately puts you on edge of just slowly creeping along this shot of a city and a carnival or fair at night as they're telling the fairy tale story. And then the last question that they always ask of, but is that really like, is that really what went down? Is that really what happened? Is that really like what you wanted? And then the, it flashes to Anthe standing in the planetarium and the shutters instantly closing again. This shit is shot like a horror movie. (laughs) So this is a total aside. There's kind of like an ongoing debate 
in the uh, the fandom of like where exactly Otori Academy is. Now, the fact that they go to this carnival and it has a gigantic Ferris wheel might indicate like if you try and find like Ferris wheels in Tokyo, you'll definitely come across uh, Daikin Rancha, which is um, in Odaiba, which is in Tokyo. But that wasn't built yet. (laughs) (laughs) It would be two years before that was built. So, and we know that like we can see the hotel room from, or we can see the, um, the Ferris wheel from the hotel room, and it's presumably down the highway from the school based upon the drive. And the highway goes along the coastline. Spoiler, like 85% of the highways in Japan do. Uh, <laughs> but like, it puts it in a few possible districts in like southwestern Tokyo. But it's not clear that like, where this ferris wheel is <laughs> because right. like, the the big one wasn't built yet so just like throwing that out there is like random trivia um before we move on to uh the next scene which is uh which is anthe in the planetarium she's alone and the shades close so that she can see the planetarium being projected as opposed to the stars in the sky. And we get the title card while the phone is ringing and Anthe answers. And we only get her half of this conversation. We will later get the other half of the conversation. And she says, like, for her part of the conversation, it's, I didn't want to look at the real ones. So presumably the question is, why are you in the planetarium when there's a beautiful night sky to look at? Which that line, I didn't want to look at the real ones. I don't know if I'm not going to say I don't know. I do know. (laughs) Like this to me communicates a level of guilty conscience. Oh, yeah. Like she can't bear to look at the night sky right now. Not the real one. Mm-hmm. For two yeah. reasons, I think. One, she knows what she just did in in terms of like serving Utana up on a platter to Akio. Because her next question is, did you get the roses? And we will find out later that she had sent Utana to deliver the roses to Akio. And that's what kicked off this day together. The other, the night sky in past episodes has been used to represent Akio himself. Mm, That also tracks. I took it as not wanting to face reality. I can also see like her closing herself in to the planetarium as not wanting to face her brother, aka the stars in the sky, and what she did. Yeah, I think that she just totally withdrew so she didn't have to face the reality of what what happened what was happening yeah i wonder if this is the first time she feels guilty for doing this to someone i think so like i wonder if it's happened before i assume it has happened before i mean flip a coin that might be how we got kanai like 
I wonder if her connection to Utena has changed her in such a way that for once she regrets being a part of this. Yeah. So then we get the first of Utena's stream of consciousness scenes where she talks about how much fun they had that day and how she rode every ride. And then she transitions seamlessly into bringing up the fact that she's an only child, which I, I think is like an interesting like way that she frames her own experience. She doesn't, she doesn't describe herself as an orphan. Um, she doesn't bring up the fact that like her parents might have had more kids had they survived. She just talks about being an only child. Yeah, you know, I didn't catch that. <laughs> but that is a very important distinction. Like, people that normally talk about being an only child still very much, like, ha have their parents, like, their parents didn't die tragically, typically. Like, that's normally some shit you say, like, when you're just like, oh, yeah, I don't have any siblings. Not, I'm an orphan. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, that is interesting that she frames her experience that way. And she then says that she wishes that Anthe had been able to come along uh, because you can't have this much fun alone, which is another interesting way of phrasing it. Like by alone, she's saying Anthe can't possibly be having as much fun as us because she's alone. Or <laughs> is she discounting Akio's presence at that moment and saying that like she wanted her best friend roommate along with them because it wouldn't have been it wasn't as much fun as it would have been if Anthe was there mm. who knows who's to say <laughs> <laughs> yeah so after this it like the cuts in this episode are very jarring. The team behind Utena is taking the viewer's face and just like turning it this way and that the whole episode. Like, now look over here. Now look over here. And this cut is to Akio driving in the car. At first I thought by himself, but now I'm like questioning everything with the perspective stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Because it very well could be from the perspective of Utena in the passenger seat or somebody else in the passenger seat. Um, but the shadow girls, interestingly enough, come on the radio and they talk about the beautiful autumn constellations for couples to gaze out at that night. Uh, and they call it a night for couples to glimpse eternity. Yeah. So like, once again, it, it kind of feels like both things, both Akio manipulating the world to be this one thing and also the world itself almost having like a consciousness and pulling towards this one thing. Like all of the stars are trying so desperately to align to have this one thing happen tonight. And also just yuck. At the concept of glimpse eternity, meaning have sex. Ugh. <laughs> Sorry, but just, ugh. <laughs> if you need to, like, palate cleanse that phrase, 
you have the Mass Effect series and the the way that Asari <laughs> have sex. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> because they say embrace eternity and it is much more beautiful and much less creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Gaze into my soul and glimpse eternity. Like, Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, they also talk about... Well, first of all, the Shadow Girls have this little radio show segment and they transition it to being a radio game show yeah. uh, <laughs> where they pose the question, what does eternal mean? Okay. I want to pause one second and talk about this because okay. a younger listener might not know this or realize this back in the eighties. Uh, the telecommunications stuff was all deregulated, including radio stations. And so what started was then a like 15-year project of merging and buying every single radio station. So now like three companies control all of radio across the entire continent. Damn. It used, it used to be that your local radio station had locally employed DJs around the clock. Yes. Yes, it did. Now it is all run out of like Chicago and Atlanta and New York. And they just have these control rooms where one DJ is rebroadcast on like 56 different stations at one time. And they're all, they're quote unquote local stations, but it's all just the same DJ. Yeah. So back when it was local DJs, you would have these radio call-in games. Uh, some local stations still exist out there and they will still have these. Um, but like this kind of radio game used to be all over the place. You could not go through like the five o'clock hour without one of these games. Um, there would be call-in stuff throughout the workday as well, because like the assumption was that people would have radios on in their office. So much of that has changed. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is almost impossible to get like a call-in segment on a show at this point. You used to be able to call the local radio station and request songs. Yeah. That used to be a thing you could do. So like this segment dates this show more than the cars, more than the cell phones. Like this segment really dates this show. <laughs> <laughs> I am assuming that Japan still has this kind of thing. Um, but like it is not where it was in like the 90s. Anyway, my other major trivia for this one. So it's interesting that the uh the shadow girls recognize the end of the world as somebody who had written into them yes and the i i haven't talked about this before but like the way it's stated um uh, his name is uh sakai no hate which is uh an idiom which means the end of the world and it's different from sakai no owari which is the other way to say like the end of something. So the way that like um, a friend of mine who's a native speaker explained it to me is like Owari would be like 
everyone dies, end of the world. Mm-hmm. Sakai no Hate is like the end of the world as in like off the edge of the map. Oh. So it's interesting to me that like this idiom preserves like a different word for ending while still being so closely associated with an apocalypse as opposed to an unexplored place. Like the two different ways you can mean the end of the world. Because like in English, the end of the world is usually apocalyptic in its implications. Yeah. But then you would say like the ends of the earth to say like way over there beyond what's been explored. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the idioms in Japanese are reversed that way. Yeah. Or at least in like the way that they're using it for this show. Also makes me think of something I never thought of before this moment. If Akio dies, is everybody set free? It's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever thought about that question before. (laughs) I'm just over here thinking about like... So this is um, very off topic, but uh, I've been thinking about picking up throwing knives as a hobby, and now I think I've found as the perfect do. target. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> and I think I've, <laughs> uh, you know, as as somebody who's uh, gay does, and um, I I think I've found my perfect like target to use for my knife throwing practice, and it's just going to be a printed out picture of Oculus face. Um, perfect. Perfect. So I'm. <laughs> I'm literally just sitting over here like, so what, if, what, if, but what if this, what if this like awful person dies? Like, <laughs> like what happens? But no, really, like he calls himself the end of the world or the world that other people around him call him. No, he does call himself the end of the world. That's what he like signs off his little letters with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he calls himself the end of the world. If he dies, does that the world as it end the world does the world as it is end truly there's no one to manipulate anthe anymore thus also there's no one to keep them like reeled in and like trapped in this eternal high school yeah i will say i will reserve my commentary on that until after the final episode in the movie yeah Particularly after the movie. Okay. It's also going to be funny to revisit that after. Because <laughs> there's just so much that I still don't know. But anyway. I need to like pick out a listener and just like pay them 50 bucks to listen to the entire series and make note of all the times I say, we'll talk about that after the <laughs> end of the show. And just like email that list to me so that I know what our final episode should be because <laughs> <laughs> like i know that i have not been keeping track of how many times i've said put a pin in that uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> i should have been <laughs> i realize that now 30 some episodes into this eh, but anyway oh well. <laughs> <laughs> so the radio call-in game they ask uh what Which of the following things is eternal? A diamond, a memory, or canned peaches? And as we know from the presidents of the United States of America, peaches, which come in a can, 
are definitely eternal because you are definitely now singing that song in your head. <laughs> Unless you're too young to have ever heard that song, in which case I just sound like a crazy person. <laughs> oh! If you lived through 1995, that song has a permanent place in your head. Dead. Uh, also, before they ask him that, he straight up admits to like breaking what they call the rules, but essentially like the law when they ask him what he does for a living. And he says, I have another job on the side. Like he talks about being a principal or a chairman for a school. And then he's like, yeah, but I have another job on the side. Isn't that against the rules? Yeah, but it'll work out if no one catches me. Just straight up admits to like misdemeanor <laughs> or felony, like on the fucking on the radio and off camera and everything. <laughs> This man gives no fucks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little curious what that even means in terms of it, like, not being allowed. Because, like, his side job is being a prince who manipulates people. Like, (laughs) right. That's his side gig. (laughs) (laughs) But it's almost like the whole Superman and Batman thing where Superman is actually Clark Kent. Superman is the persona he adopts when being a hero. Batman is truly Batman. And Bruce Wayne is the persona he adopts when he needs to be around normal people. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. And like, like with this, we know that for real, Akio's real job is, you know, being the so-called prince. And his side gig is being the the person in charge of a Tory. Because really, what is he doing? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) That man doesn't work. You're telling me that man works? No. So he says he has to go to his side job. And then we have like one of those flash cuts where now we see him in his prince outfit. And it shows him going to pick up Sionji. Like the, the way that cut appears. Which I think is like a really interesting cut there because now we're seeing what at least it seems like we're seeing Akio before each of those times he showed up in those scenes. Or he fucks with time. Always a possibility at a Tory Academy. Uh Uh-huh. So like he could be driving in the quote unquote present moment of like the night the carnival date night with Utena. Right. Or like slightly before that or something, but. And then puts on his outfit and then is like back in the past to pick up Sionji. Yep. It's entirely possible. I don't see Mickey stopwatch anywhere. So. Uh Uh-huh. Time shenanigans are on the table. Yep. Man, just when you think, you know, like any fucking thing about this show, you, you do not. It's like constantly like, yeah, everything's just kind of like questionable. Like time and reality don't exist here. They're just like <laughs> playthings. They're just our playthings. <laughs> then the, the show cuts to um, the protracted scene with Sionji and the duel and all that stuff. Um, notably, the highlight of this one is that it picks up the conversation that Sionji has with Utena about the idea of Anthe having feelings. Yeah. And no will of her own. 
Yeah, and the fact that he's like surprised and a little disgusted that Utena considers Anthe's feelings. Yeah. Then we cut to the next of Utena's like stream of consciousness moments in the hotel room. Uh, she's sitting by the radio where they're announcing the end of what I'm assuming is a wrestling match with mm-hmm. uh, one of them being the king of imposters. <laughs> <laughs> and he, yeah, like WWE style wrestling is huge in Japan. And I don't know. It is what it is. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, Hulk Hogan. His nickname in Japan was Ichiban, number one. Oh my god, that's incredible. <laughs> um, that, that's what they would chant is Ichiban, Ichiban. Uh, but yeah, so it's a huge thing in Japan. And so that's what I'm assuming is going on here as opposed to like boxing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really interesting to me is the way that we're starting to pick up on the idea that this is Akio's point of view. She's not talking to herself. I wouldn't put it past Utena to do so, but like this is a scene where you would almost expect her to be talking to like Choo Choo. Uh huh. Right? Because like Anthe's not there. So this is the kind of conversation that she has with Choo Choo. Mm-hmm. And instead, she's having it with an absolutely silent observer who can only be Akio. And she is stretching. She is constantly in motion, which we have seen in the past is both her way of dealing with boredom and her way of dealing with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Isn't she also, is this the point where she's like freshly out of the shower? Is she in the robe or um, is that later? That is right. I was just about to say like, that is what comes next. We come back from the Mickey and Kozue stuff. Okay. And we're back in that same scene with Utena, except this time she's toweling off after having been in the shower. Um, And this time she's kind of rambling about like an old teacher that she had. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The teacup. (laughs) Yeah. Like they also called her alum. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a pun or something. Um, But yeah, they called her a teacher or they, they called her teacup. And she says that she had it out for me. And she's trying to think of the other nickname that this woman had. And she just can't think of it. And it's another one of these like eerily private moments that we're witnessing of her just like rambling and puzzling something out. And then we have the cut to commercial. Now, here is where I want to pitch something because this is the start of one of several moments that we see uh, in this episode where Utena gets confused and suddenly can't recall something, whether it's in her own memory or whether it's an external factor. Like what time is it? Um, How long has it been that we've been here? Given the previous episode where we saw Kanae drugged via food and they've eaten in this episode, they had a whole meal together in this hotel room. 
I do think that he drugged her. Interesting. That is not a take I would have gone with, but I can see where you're going with it. Only because if they, if we had not seen the glimpse of Kanae being fed the apple and she's clearly out of her mind, she's glazed over, I would not have thought this. But the fact that she's like not, Utana's not in her right mind kind of throughout this whole thing. Obviously she had like a traumatizing experience, (laughs) but it made me question when she starts to have moments like this, because I went back and rewatched this, like these, these kind of portions of the episode. And it made me question, was she drugged? So I'm going to disagree on this one, but I'm going to say like, that's a totally valid read of this. My disagreement comes from the idea that to Akio, Kane is a disposable tool that he just needs to keep like around. Yeah, like placid or something. I think the value that Utena has for him as a so-called conquest is in her willingness. That everything leading up to this was preparing her to be the person he wants her to be in this moment. And that taking that agency away from her would render everything before this meaningless to him. Yeah, I can see that. I'm just like, he's so slimy and he's done this already. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, it's totally like within his playbook. Like he could do this. He has the capacity to do this to somebody. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, Plus, plus at the very end of the episode where they're in the car together and she's coming to. I was like, that motherfucker drugged her. Like, <laughs> I'm going to say I read it a different way. Yeah. Um, like, she has these moments of confusion. I-, I think the chronology of this is a little different from the way you're interpreting it. Like, I interpret it a little differently than you are. Which yeah. is, all these scenes that we're seeing play out in chronological order. Aside from uh, Anthony at the very beginning of the episode. I think... Um, we see Utana hanging out in the, the hotel room. She takes a shower, um, all of that stuff. And I think the rape happens at the very end in the, in chronological order. So yes, this bit about like her being forgetful. I think this is the first signs of her dissociation. Yeah. I can totally see that, too. She is talking about meaningless shit. (laughs) And, of course, like, it's like half-remembered stream of consciousness. Because what is happening in the present is she is not talking to Akio. They are not having a conversation in any meaningful sense. She is just nervous talking and slowly distancing herself from herself. Yeah. Like, that's how I read this scene. Because, like, we come back from commercial and we get another instance of this where she's talking about having left the bread out and wondering if Anthony would put it away because they forgot to do it earlier. And right on the heels of that, we get the Mickey duel where the topic of conversation is having to give up your purity to get the things that you want. Mm-hmm. Then we cut to another scene of Akio in the car with the lights 
and the shadow girls call him back. And he's like, oh, we're still doing this? Yeah. (laughs) And question two is, what is a miracle? And the options were Edison's inventions, meeting a prince, or canned coelacanth. Again, obviously it's the canned option. Yes, yes. (laughs) Miracles come in a can. Yeah. Uh, Every child knows this. Yeah, this episode sponsored by your local canning agency. (laughs) (laughs) And again, Akio doesn't get a chance to answer because we cut to Juri, Ruka, and Shiori and like their whole shtick going on. Um, And we just get like the recap of those two episodes. I didn't pick out any like truly meaningful quotes in that. Um, Not like with like the, the Mickey one. No, I didn't either. But we come back to Utena playing Go against herself. And while she's playing this game, uh, or I, I, have in question, I have a question mark here. Is she playing against herself? Is Akio actually participating in this? Because later, she's surprised that she's losing. And I'm just like, are you losing against yourself? <laughs> 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 because... I interpreted it as her playing against herself with that moment of surprise being like, yeah, she's playing against herself and losing. And that surprises her because she's so out of sorts right now. Oh, yeah. Because she's having another conversation with herself, with Akio present, about cooking and always messing up the measurements. And again, more of that nervous rambling. And specifically... She pointedly says, like, when you ruin a meal, you can't undo it. Like, once it's done, it's done. Right. Also, um, of course, she's on edge because this is the longest amount of time she's spent alone with Akio since she's had a revelation. Really, the longest amount of time she's spent alone with Akio, period. Yes. She has spent a full day with him at this point. Yeah. I also imagine it's like an they even set it up this way again with the framing and the shot, but it really is spending a long amount of time with like a predator in every sense of the word. It probably feels that way to her on a subconscious level. Yeah. Like I think of like as a, as a threat response. Yeah. The idea of like the, like as a threat response, like the, the whole uh, so-called fawning response of yes. making yourself as non-threatening as possible. And it's interesting that like with all of the ways in which this show revolves around Utena fighting, the moment she's actually in danger, this is her response, is to reduce herself, to make herself less threatening. Yeah, I mean... It's always easier to stand up for somebody else than it is yourself, especially when you are still a child. But yeah, that fawning response was exactly what I was thinking of, too. As she's like rambling and everything, I'm like, oh, yeah, you are trying to make yourself as like small as possible. And then we have the moment, really. Uh, Utina turns off the light. Uh And then she stirs in bed and turns over and we cut to 
Akio back on the phone with the Shadow Girls saying, miracles happen every day. We just don't notice them. And then we cut back to one of those shots that the animators definitely put a lot of time into. The art on this shot is impeccable for, again, one of the most horrifying moments in the show. Mm-hmm. And she delivers what I call the lunch monologue. Yeah. Where she's talking about, again, nervous talking, just rambling about lunch the next day. And again, the shot is tight on her face from directly above. And we're being forced into Akio's perspective again. Yeah, this was like, again, what we talked about earlier. The most dissociation obviously understandably why but the lunch and food monologue is just her desperate attempt to like be anywhere but here and then we see a moment where she physically starts at something yeah um whether that is pain pleasure surprise all of the above. And she says, tell me, what is eternity? And we see those words fly by on the road um, as a quick insert shot. And we cut back to Akio holding her hand while he's assaulting her. Yep. Like, when people talk about graphic depictions of sex and violence and sexual assault, this is an example of like how much you can show with how little. And they do not pull their punches on this not being a romantic moment. If you are like fully invested in this story being one of romance, I can understand how people wouldn't see it for what it is. But objectively, you're wrong. <laughs> like, there are a few yeah. things I will say that about, but like, objectively, you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know how you could see that as anything but that. A lot I... of a lot of viewers do, and a lot of viewers have over the course of this show's life. That really surprises me. Granted, we're like 25 years removed from when this was first aired. True, and a lot of the scenes. A lot of the show itself sets up this romance as a romance without and without like a certain level of media literacy and a certain level of uh, like feminist awareness around the topic of statutory rape. Yeah. In 1997, I would say like Ikuhara knew that this was wrong. I don't know that every animator working on the show necessarily agreed just based upon like some of the shots that are in the show, some of the promotional art that gets released around this exact moment. Mm. I don't think everybody involved in the production was in full agreement that what happened was a crime, but it was. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the next bit that we get is... Akio dialing on his little fancy car phone that was like state-of-the-art back then and uh, calls Anthe. And this is where we get the other half of the conversation from the very beginning of the episode. And 
what I think is interesting is they kind of both have this moment of like silence when they both pick up, like when he dials and when she picks up the phone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a conversation like any, uh, unlike any other. It's not one. It's just not normal. <laughs> it's what I'm trying to say. Like <laughs> it's, uh, it's like two telepathic beings calling each other on the phone. And there's this moment where they're like, you got it? You got it. All right. Thanks. <laughs> but um, you don't need telepathy for that conversation. What's happening here is she knows damn well that she just served up Utana on a platter. And uh-huh. the, fact that, the fact that he is calling at that hour means he took it's it. It's done. Yeah. Yep. It's done. And so like they don't need to have this conversation. And so like the first few seconds of it is just do we need to talk? Right. <laughs> I mean, he literally could have just called her, had five seconds of silence and hung up. Exactly. And it would have had the same impact and message. But the grossest part of the conversation is uh, him affirming that he got the roses and tells Anthe, well done. Yep. But of, of course he's going to do that. Because that's their relationship. And he wants to keep that in check. So, yep. And we close with Utena saying, all I came to do was deliver the roses. And that moment right there is, I want to say, like, the most horrifying of all of them. Because with everything else that happened... You know, Akio is responsible for it. We even see him take responsibility for it in this conversation with Anthe. But in Utena's worldview, and we've t- talked about this before of like the narrative of trauma being so important. In Utena's worldview, all of these were her choices. And we see that in her taking responsibility for delivering the roses. Never mind that we as the audience know in like a moment of dramatic irony that this was engineered. There was no part of her delivering roses that was spontaneous. This was always specifically to put her in reach of Akio on that day at that moment for this purpose. And in Utena's mind, this was all her choice and the result of her choices. That's the tragedy. That's the horror of this episode. Yeah. Because even though you talked about Akio wanting like her agency to be a part of it, it was all an, an illusion anyway. Because everything with Akio is an illusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah, let me just, here, let's play some cards. All right, I'm going to give you these exact cards in your hand, and now let's play the game together. Right. But I've already rigged this whole thing from the start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I am so scared <laughs> and nervous for Utana. Also, because here's the big question for me. Because she's she thinks that she's found her prince, kind of, sort of, in some way, shape, or form... She kind of acknowledged that in in this experience that somehow, some way it locked in that he 
became a prince. Can she not fight anymore? Because this whole time, it's been the power of Dios as the prince powering her. So can she like not draw on that anymore? Can she not fight? Is it like, I know psychologically she's and emotionally she's going to be fucked up and that's going to play a part in it too. But like from the prince logistics (laughs) (laughs) of this show, is she not quote unquote qualified to be uh, the companion of the Rose Bride anymore? I don't know. Or like the true heroine or whatever. We have six more episodes to find out the answer to that question. Oh my god. I feel like she's going to try to pull out the sword and not a damn thing is going to happen. Okay. Uh, And also like even more important than that, what is her and Anthe's relationship going to be like from this point forward? It's all fucked up now. Like... (laughs) We've seen that Anthe feels some level of guilt about it. Utana feels definitely some levels of guilt about it. Wait, how does Utana feel guilty about it? Well, I mean, like you just said, she puts herself like, this was my responsibility. I did this. I just came to deliver the roses. This is my fault that we even did this. I never expected we'd end up doing what we did. And she talked about, like, uh, I don't want to get in the way of him and Kanae. He's engaged, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So what is your prediction for next time? You kind of touched on it a little bit with your questions about whether or not she can still even duel. Yeah. um, (sighs) So the... The preview for the next episode, some things that I wrote down from it are like, this is where it all began. It looks like Uten is going into like some fucking creepy basement or something. Um, It talks about a light sealed away. I wrote no Anthe next time. Maybe I just didn't see Anthe in the preview at all. We do get a shot of her, but. Okay. I don't know where your thought process was going with that so i don't know i don't either i don't want to read too much into it because this is your prediction (laughs) (laughs) and then i wrote the last thing that i wrote was but who exactly are you question mark so i wonder if we're gonna get a duel next episode i feel like it's probably more of a two-parter type predicament because it seems more like it's going to be revealing something then it would be a fight. But as with all things, maybe I'm wrong. So Um, what I will say is that the show is broken up into four distinct plot arcs separated by these uh, recap episodes. So the first one was the student council arc where it was introducing all the student council members and each one of them got a turn at the duels. Next was the Black Rose Saga. Mm-hmm. We just finished the Akio Otori arc where everything kind of revolves around Akio and Utena's relationship to Akio culminating in this episode. Mm-hmm. The final six episodes are known as the end of the world. Oh, good. So you got that going for you. <laughs> Great. Thanks. <laughs> oh, good. Ah. Oh. Well, I don't think I'm going to get what I want in that I don't think I'm going to see Akio die. 
Um, <laughs> I just don't think that's going to happen. I think it's too unrealistic of a goal. Um, but again, talking about him being the end of the world and what that really means. I mean, I do think it's, well, it's obvious to me or it feels obvious to me that like, if you, if you remove Akio from the equation, the world does end. Like we are able to go to those parts of the map that are before now undiscovered, meaning adulthood. Like people would finally be allowed to grow up. Um, okay. I, I, this is just not, I don't see this ending well. I don't see this being a happy ending kind of show, which devastates me. I will be on the floor crying. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at some point, inevitably, um, ah, I, it very much feels like, again, the end of the world is tied in with the concept of letting go of your youth or childhood and ha- being forced to grow up into adulthood. Sure. And I, I think that's just what's going to happen to Utana. It, it, the process has already started. I just hate it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I hate that she is not going to, it's going to be forced. It already has been. Um, it's not going to be something that, like, <laughs> the perfect childhood, you know, where it's just you go to school, you graduate, and then you move on to the next part of your life. Honestly, I'm kind of worried she's going to be, like, forced out of the school in some way or another. I just get that vibe. Okay. Because, again, <laughs> the end of the world is adulthood, but it's also like this realm sphere type thing, like of Otori Academy. So I think she's going to be forced to grow up and forced out of the school. We'll see. I would also say that, like, but that's not a bad it, thing. I would say in some ways it's very specifically like Akio's view of adulthood. Because mm-hmm. like he has expressed in past episodes that like there is something about youth that is of like ultimate value. Right? Like he has said that uh, stars begin to dim the moment they're born. You know, he is obsessed with youth in a way that is genuinely disturbing, um, but also speaks to his whole like Peter Pan syndrome thing of like staying in this academy, um, keeping people here, fetishizing youth. And I don't mean that in like a pedophile way. I mean that in like he just fetishizes the idea of youth. Yeah. Of staying young forever. Right. So yeah, not necessarily a bad thing to leave that environment (laughs) and that school, but it's one thing to leave. It's another thing to be forced out. Right. I would also say that like growing up and moving on from this place is a thing you're supposed to do with high school. Exactly. Like you're not supposed to get stuck in high school, but no, when you're in it, the concept of growing up and moving on is is alien you know like you don't know what that means and so it's scary and then as soon as you're out of it 
you look back on it and go, wow, that was kind of silly of me. <laughs> yeah. And if Akio is like trapped the same way everyone else is, then yeah, like his entire view of adulthood is so warped by believing it's something bad that he needs to run away from, you know, then yeah, of course he's going to stay here forever. And he's going to do this to people. I'm convinced at this point, if Akio were to ever leave, like, the scope of the school, of all that Otori Academy, like, contains, he would just immediately turn to dust. Like, it would be a Makage moment where it's just like, and, <laughs> and poof. You're- this is like... This is like World of Darkness vampire rules where the moment you die, yes! your body reverts to whatever its actual chronological age is. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> he just immediately goes to like full mummy, mummy return skull, like <laughs> skeleton. <laughs> he steps outside the school and is just dusted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a huge blast of wind comes by and he's gone. Uh God, I wish. <laughs> I know. It but it very it it is like you are trapped in a mast- machination of your own making. <laughs> and uh also Loki convinced that like uh Anthea is this like ageless eternal being that just exists outside of time, space, everything, reality. Uh and would just be completely unaffected. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's my predictions for next time. Anthe, proven 6,000-year-old witch. <laughs> Akio, brittle bones, get dusted. <laughs> so if you want to share your theories for what would happen to Akio if he ever left the bounds of the school... Uh, which to be clear he did we just had an entire episode where that took place off campus but did it (laughs) but like if he were to leave say the sphere of influence of the school because like we know that like some people have left and come back you Mm -hmm. know like even Mm -hmm. mikage left and came back and still looked the same age to the degree that uh, Tokiko comments on it like, I don't know what's going on, but you still look like you're 18. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm 38. <laughs> so if you have your theories about what would happen to Akio if he ever grew up and moved on, uh, you can write them to us at absolute destiny, a podcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us on Twitter at Zetai Unme Pod. We're both also individually on Twitter. I'm at Life in Neon. And I'm at Car Cutie. And uh, we're both on like Twitch on those same uh, names as well. Yeah. I'm trying right. to pick back up on streaming. So, yeah, I've been streaming a lot lately. Um, I've been focused mainly on the Quarry, which is as a game, it is the best horror movie since 1997. <laughs> uh, And then also uh, Project Zomboid, which is a game from like a decade ago that I have finally found out about. It finally popped up in my like Steam recommendations and I'm loving it. (laughs) 
It's like The Sims, but survival horror zombies. I wish I could do zombies. Rip. (laughs) (laughs) You can't do zombies? No. Just like the idea disturbs you too much or? Yeah, it gives me literal sleep paralysis. Oh, shit. Yeah. Well, then don't watch my stream. I was about to <laughs> I was about to tell you I'm going to stream after this. Don't Fuck. watch my stream. <laughs> uh, I still have to come by and watch the quarry uh, when I'm not so much of a chicken at night. <laughs> I will probably be streaming the quarry tomorrow. Not okay. that like, this has anything to do with the podcast because like today, tomorrow, these dates will mean nothing. To you, right. the listener, when you listen to this. <laughs> Just like us, the viewer, when we watch fucking Revolutionary Girl Utena. Time means nothing. Time uh, is an illusion. Yes. Anyway, write into us. We love hearing from you. And we will see you next time.